We started this series, I, I, I looked it up, I was curious, on the 15th of January. So just about the turn of the new year. We're, we're finishing chapter 4 today, so our pace is about, with some topical sermons thrown in, about a chapter a month, it seems, or so. We're four in, we have 24 to go, and so we're plugging along um, at a decent pace, I think. It may take a couple years. But what we, what we see here uh, in this section is really something of a progress report of all that God has been doing since the pouring out of His Spirit at Pentecost. We see today a, a report of the work of Jesus Christ in the group of all of this massive new converts that have come to a now living faith in Jesus. So why don't we read now God's Word? I'm going to read from Acts chapter 4 and verse 32. Verse 32, hear now the Word of God. Now the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul, and no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own, but they had everything in common. And with great power, the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them all. There was not a needy person among them. For as many as were owners of lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to each as any had need. Thus Joseph, who was also called by the apostles Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, a Levite, a native of Cyprus, sold a field that belonged to him and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Amen. Let's pray. Our Lord and God, we, we do give you thanks for your word. We understand this to be the infallible inspired God-breathed scriptures, those that are able to make a man wise unto salvation through faith in Jesus Christ. Uh, Lord, we understand that this is a profitable word, that it is able to thoroughly furnish your people, that we might be thoroughly equipped for every good work. Your word is living and active, and it cuts and divides like a double-edged sword. It discerns the intentions and thoughts of the heart of a man. Your word does not return void, but it goes out for that which it has purposed to endeavor. Um, your word is like a hammer that crushes and a fire that ignites a fire. And so we pray that you today, O oh God, by your spirit would work in your church through your word. Um, let this word be to us today, manna from heaven. We pray that it might challenge us, Lord, it might correct us, that it might convict us that it might encourage us, that, it, that this word might save today, that you might open up your kingdom, open up the doors of heaven, and bring some weary soul today into your house of wine. And so, God, we pray now your blessing on this time. Would you, would you help our focus, help our minds to engage with the biblical text? Um, let us forget and take everything captive to Christ uh, the week that, is, that has preceded us, Lord, and all of its difficulties, uh, let us lay aside the burdens of tomorrow and all that is sure to be there. But let us hold every thought captive in this time in obedience to Christ that we might, um, together with one mind and one soul, hear your word and respond in faith. So help me now to preach as I ought with boldness, clarity, and humility. Um, keep me from anything that is of the flesh. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. January 6th, 2021 is a date that will forever live in infamy in, in this nation. Um, you can talk to various people and you will get widely different opinions as to what took place on that day. Some would say that this was an act of patriots that were standing opposed to tyranny and government overreach. Others would say this was an act of terrorism on U.S. soil. It was an insurrection, as we've heard all across the media. Um, I went to Wikipedia, where one goes for all the infinite knowledge that could be found in the world, and Wikipedia had a very strong opinion as to what transpired that day and who was at fault, namely one Donald Trump. Um, but what I, what I bring this up, not to 
to, to discuss really the, the details of that event, but to point to the fact that this event, I believe, is a sort of a microcosm, a picture of the division that is at place right now in our nation. We are people divided. Red, blue, conservative, um, liberal, Republican, Democrat, uh, by classes, by creed, by whatever it is, we seem to be more and more divided. And this division often breeds skepticism. It breeds cynicism of others, which seems to breed a sort of inward focus, a selfishness, a lack of trust in others around us. It seems that the internet has only really heightened this us versus them mentality. Every person that doesn't check every box of the things I believe politically and sociologically certainly has to be my enemy. Or maybe they're just a fool because they don't see things the way I do. And it just seems to have a tendency to divide us and, and make us more inward and skeptical. And this breeds a sense of selfishness, of self-focus of not wanting to love our neighbor, or maybe having very many um, um, pre-reasons why, all these things that we, that, that we would want to see in someone before we might love our neighbor. And of course, the church is not exempt to this division, to this infighting. Paul's first letter to the church in Corinth he deals in the very first chapter to division within the church. Why are you, some are of Apollo, some are of Peter, some are of Christ, some are of Paul. We love our theological camps. We love our labels. Is he an Arminian or a Calvinist, cessationist or a continuationist, credo-baptist, paedo-baptist, confessional, non-confessional, amill, post-mill, pre-mill, preterist, idealist, Historicist, futurist. This week, it's, is he a Christian nationalist? And if you are, you belong over there. And if you're not, you belong over there. And if you don't hold my view, then we're at odds with each other. Even in this tiny little reformed-ish world that some of us dwell in, there's all of this division and infighting. Now I believe theological um, distinctions and labels have their purpose. When I read a book, I want to know where someone's coming from. When I hear a sermon, I want to know who they are. But it seems, again, the internet has heightened this divisive nature, this us versus them nature that breeds a sort of skepticism about everyone, a self-inward focus. Does the Bible have any answers for this division that we see in our day, for this self-focus that we see in our day? Does it give any help for us to overcome these tendencies of the flesh that we all to some degree, I believe, are faced with. Should we as Christians and can we live in such a way that we are not overtaken by divisiveness, skepticism, selfishness, and greed that is so common in our day? I believe the Bible does have answers. And so my thesis today, if you will, my proposition is this, because Jesus makes us new creations, we can overcome division and selfishness. Because Jesus makes us new creations, we can overcome division and selfishness. So we see this new creation community that has been formed in the book of Acts. And I want to see today four markers, four things that uh, are, are drawn out from this passage. We'll see first that the new creation community is marked by a spiritual unity, a spiritual unity. We'll see that it's marked by sacrifice. We'll see that it is empowered by the gospel. And fourthly, we'll see that it is marked by generosity. Generosity. So we've been reading in the book of Acts, and we've seen a, an explosion of Christianity. I, I don't know how else to, to, to discuss or how else to label it, but we've seen the gospel just explode in Judea. One day, 3,000-some souls are being saved, we're saved, and from that point on, it's just been proliferation of the faithful, an explosion of people coming to faith in Jesus Christ. I, I can't imagine the difficulty for the apostles trying to shepherd and wrangle all of these people, trying to figure out how to, how to lead this flock and how to delegate and, and, and all that needed to take place. By and large, up to this point, it's been all good for the apostles. Now, they were arrested, 
And they were charged with some very serious charges, but Jesus helped them there stand firm, the Spirit of Jesus in them, helped them stand firm. But as far as the church goes, it's been nothing but incredible growth so far. Now we'll see next week that there's sin in the camp, right? The church, don't get, don't, don't confuse the book of Acts as utopia. If we can just get there, there is sin in the camp. We'll see that next week. There's judgment that will come because of that sin. Um, but up until this point, there's been nothing really but growth and good coming from this massive gospel um, invasion and, and expansion that has happened. And read with me then in verse 32 as we see this number. He says, the full number of those who believed were of one heart and one soul. Your translation may say the multitude, the masses of people, or the congregation. This is the, this is the whole, or close to the whole, of this group that has been saved. The full number of the people. Remember, thousands have been saved. If we take the most conservative number, we're at about 5,000. I think it's more than that. I think the numbers we've seen have been compiling. But the most conservative is 5,000 men. So there's a lot of people in this group. They've come together, but we read somehow thousands of people are of one heart and one soul. And so my first point, again, is that a new creation community is marked by spiritual unity. Spiritual unity. Unity. Now, I, I use that word spiritual intentional, intentionally, and I want to try to show that. Um, it's not exclusively a Christian thing to live together in com- communal living, right? Human beings have done this forever. Be- long be- or, well, outside of Christianity, it's common that people come together for, for, shared, uh, for shared mutual help of one another. This is, a, this is as old as the world is. Hippies live on communes. Because they want to live with like-minded people. Um, Many of us were awakened a couple years ago, whatever it was, when overnight a a switch was flipped and the world shut down. And we all lived with this vain hope, this sort of false hope that Fred Meyer will always have food on the shelves and I don't have to worry about anything because it's always going to be there for me to buy. And I'm always going to have money that's going to be accepted in the store. But we saw overnight that that ended. And basic necessities like toilet paper were, were hard to come by. We're being sold online for ten times the price. And so it's not an exclusively Christian thing for people to see how the world is and say it would benefit us to come together and help one another. But I think what we're seeing in this text is more than just mutual help and communal living. There's a power that is at the foundation. There's a work of God that is causing these thousands to love each other in this way. I believe really what's happening is the fulfillment of God's promises in the Old Testament are coming to pass in the lives of these people. So I want to look at a couple texts. Turn with me to Jeremiah 31, 31. There are a few, a couple passages in the Old Testament that very clearly discuss the new covenant that Christ would inaugurate with his own blood. And Jeremiah 31 is probably the clearest text in the Old Testament, in my opinion. It's a text that is quoted verbatim in um, Hebrews chapter 8. And so when you see him here saying he'll make a covenant with Israel and Judah... We read the New Testament and we see that this is speaking of the covenant that God made with Israel and Judah and the grafted in Gentiles. Jeremiah 31, 31. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah, not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on that day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant that they broke. So the old covenant was a breakable covenant. It was an imperfect covenant. I want you to see the language. We're clearly talking about the new covenant. At the end of 33, he says, I will be their God and they shall be my people. I believe this points, when you see this language, it points to the new covenant of Christ. It points to a time when the covenant people of God would would no longer be a mixed multitude. You know that on the eighth day, every single Jew that was born into the Jewish nation was circumcised and given the sign of the covenant. 
It was a physical sign that you were objectively in covenant with God. But that sign did not mean that you had saving faith in the coming Messiah. That sign did not mean that you were a believer, a true worshiper of Yahweh, and had saving faith. The entrance into the Old Covenant was the natural birth through the line of Abraham. The entrance now into the New Covenant is the spiritual birth through the blood of Jesus Christ. And he says there then, they, I will be their God and they shall be my people. No longer shall each one teach his neighbor and his brother saying, Know the Lord, for they will all know me. Every person that is in the new covenant is born again. Not every person in a church, but every person that is in the new covenant is born from above. There are no unbelievers objectively in covenant with God. So turn the page. Turn the page to 32 and 38. Jeremiah 32, verse 38. Again, he takes up that very same language. And they shall be my people, and I will be their God. Now listen to this promise. I will give them one heart and one way. One heart and one way, that they may fear me forever, for their own good, and the good of their children after them. I will make with them an everlasting covenant. Remember, the last covenant was a broken covenant. This is an everlasting covenant that I will not turn away from doing good to them. And I will put the fear of me in their hearts that they may not turn from me. I want to focus on that promise that God said that he would do. He would give them one heart in one way. And we see in our passage before us today that the full number that believed were of one heart and one soul. They, they, had, they had one mind, one heart together. They were desirous of going in the same direction. They had, as it were, the mind of Christ. The will of God was now their new desire as God had worked this spiritual work in them. So they were of one heart in one way because God said He would make them. He would recreate them to be of one heart and one way. Turn over Next to Ezekiel chapter 11. The second, I believe, clearest text is Ezekiel 36 of the New Covenant. But right here we see the same language that we just read in Ezekiel 11, verse 19. And I will give them one heart and a new spirit I will put within them. I will remove the heart of stone from their flesh and give them a heart of flesh that they may walk in my statutes and keep my rules and obey them. Here's that language again. And they shall be my people and I will be their God. Again, did you see the promise of verse 19? I will give them one heart and a new spirit I will put within them. And we see now in the book of Acts, Luke is telling us that this new creation community has one heart and one soul. How can this be? Because God has given them new hearts and God has placed His Spirit within them. God promised all along to do this work by the power of His Spirit. And thus a fundamental transformation has taken place in every true convert in this passage. This isn't just a like-mindedness. Hey, you, you believe like I do. We share the same values. You're conservative. I'm conservative. No, these are people that have been born from above. They've been recreated. They have new hearts. The Spirit of God is implanted within them. Listen to uh, Matthew Henry. He says, Though there were many, many very different ages, tempers, and conditions in the world, who perhaps before they believed were perfect strangers to one another. Yet when they met in Christ, they were as intimately acquainted as if they had known one another many years. Perhaps they had been of different sects among the Jews before their conversion, or had discords upon civil accounts. But now these were all forgotten and laid aside, and they were unanimous in the faith of Christ, and being all joined to the Lord, they were joined to one another in holy love. This was the blessed fruit of Christ's dying precept to His disciples to love one another, and His dying prayer for them that they all might be one. 
Now, what has Luke been doing since the Spirit fell at Pentecost? He's been revealing to us progressively what it means to be one in the new creation community. We've been learning what a Christian is, what God has worked in his people. We saw, if we were to go back in time to Acts chapter 1 and 2, we saw that when the Spirit came, when these believers were empowered by the Spirit of God, they were filled with a Spirit-filled courage, a Spirit-wrought courage. We saw Peter begin to preach with all boldness. We saw him facing the masses that day on multiple occasions, speaking very clearly of how the authorities rejected Jesus and ultimately conspired to kill Jesus and did succeed in that according to God's plan. We also saw that this spirit-filled courage in the new created man, the new creation community, enabled them to suffer with Christ in persecution. Right? It enabled them to be persecuted by the authorities and yet still stand and say, we must preach the gospel. We are compelled, even though you command us and demand us to stop, we cannot help but preach the gospel. As Paul says, woe is me if I do not preach the gospel. This is the work of the Spirit within them. This is a radical transformation that has taken place from what we saw of these men in the gospels. But we also see here that Luke is helping us understand that when one enters the new creation community and becomes a new creation themselves, the heart is transformed. Now, just days prior, these people may not even have known each other. But here they are willing to give to strangers, to love their neighbor, to sacrifice for one another. We'll also see next week that in the true new creation community, there is a fear and reverence of God. Those that know God do not play fast and loose with the Lord, but those that are false, we see, do at times. And so we see this, this radical unity here, and we see this pervasive divisiveness and self-focus in our world today. How do we overcome these things? How do we overcome these tendencies? We see from the beginning there is this spiritual work that God has done. He gives His people new hearts. And he gives his people his spirit. He not only commands that we love God and love neighbor, but he implants the ability to do so inside of us. He changes us from within to love the least of these, to love those that we previously and that our flesh probably still finds hard to love at times. But he gives us that ability. He gives us a new principle, a new perspective on life. He changes affections. He, he, he deals and drives our delights to a new direction. He recalibrates that which the heart cherishes. And Jesus, as Matthew Henry alluded to, Jesus in John 13 sees this as the distinguishing mark of the new creation community, that we love one another. John 13, 35, by all this, people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. Paul expects to see a radical spirit-wrought unity in the churches that he ministered to. He says this, only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm, in one spirit, with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. Philippians 1.27 So the new creation community is marked by spiritual unity. This is the source of power. This is, the, the, this is why, how we can be distinct from the world. So how do we then live? That's, that's the ability God has given us. That's the source of the power as to why they can live in such a way. But how do we practically live this out? Um, I believe it is like every part of our sanctification and every part of our obedience. We must take action by grace through faith. We must put off that which is old and put on that which is new. 
And so we see, secondly, that a new creation community is marked by sacrifice. The new creation community is marked by sacrifice. Verse 32 of Acts 4, No one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own, but they had everything in common. No one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own, but they had everything in common. It really is incredible to think about the diversity of this group, how, how, how recently they've come to know one another and to fellowship with one another, and yet how radically sacrificial they are immediately upon being brought into the fold and being converted by the Lord Jesus. And we actually saw this two chapters ago, immediately after Pentecost. Paul preached on the end there of Acts chapter 2, and we read in Acts chapter 2, after the 3,000 souls came into the church, that they devoted themselves to the means of grace and to fellowshipping, meeting with one another. And we read in verse 44 that all who believed were together and had all things in common, and they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. Now, what's happened here? What, what has changed in their thinking overnight? Are the apostles commanding those that come into, the, into this new church that you have to sell your goods? You have to distribute your wealth? You, you, have to, you, you, don't, you can't own any property. You need, to, you need to give this endowment so that we can have this, this, new, this, this pot of benevolence. You don't see that anywhere in Scripture. Um, I think Peterson is insightful here, and I was challenged by this quote. He says, They did not regard possessions as being exclusively for their own benefit and were consequently not captivated by the need to hold on to them. Let me say that again. They did not regard possessions as being exclusively for their own benefit and were consequently, consequently not captivated by the need to hold on to them. Now this, this flies in the face of, of what we might call the American dream. right? Because we want to keep up with the Joneses. My flesh tells me that I need the boat that Mr. Jones has, and I need the bigger house that Mr. Jones has, and I need the nice SUV that Mr. Jones has, and the seemingly happier family that Mr. Jones has, and the vacations that he always goes on. My flesh tells me that, that happiness is found in, in those things, in what he has, in just a little bit more, and then I will be content and satisfied. But we see here something completely opposite. We see that as soon as these people are converted, they come together and they start giving away their things. And I, and I, and I think it's just very interesting in the providence of God that this sermon falls on the Sunday that basically the entire church showed up to love a family on the previous day. And, and I think that's the fruit of the gospel, certainly working in our lives. And so don't hear me today preaching to beat up the church to say you're not good enough or doing good enough, um, but my task before me is to faithfully preach the text and to bring it to bear upon us because we all have room to grow. Amen? And so what I think is really happening is, is there's a fundamental question that we can ask ourselves that helps to see what is happening here and how, Lord willing, our minds can be shifted a bit. And the question is in regards to, to our possessions, to our time, and to our gifting. Our possessions, our time, and to our gifting. And there's two questions, really, simply. Whose are they, ultimately, and what is their greatest purpose? My stuff, my time, and my gifting. Who is, is it? Who owns it, really? Whose property is it? And what is its greatest purpose? What is the greatest good for my time, my stuff, and the gifting that God has given me. How can the new creation community, that's them and that's us, fight against the divisive, self-centered focus that we see in the world that we are so easily sucked into? So I just want to ask some probing questions to just think about this topic a bit. 
Firstly, how do you view, how do we, how, how do you view your home, your resources, your bank account, your gifts, and your time? Do you primarily view them as gifts of God given to you for your benefit and for your enjoyment? Or do you view them as gifts of God primarily given to you for the benefit of your family, your church family, your neighbor, and all that God might give you opportunity to minister to? When you come into a windfall of money, some blessing, a check comes in the mail, a, a, a mess up. I know this always happens. The IRS messes up and you have a refund when you thought you owed. What is the first thought that we have? What is the first thought that I have? This, I apologize. This is a sermon for me. I hope you get something out of it. But it's, it's certainly aimed at me. What is the first thought that we have? How, how can I serve myself? What can I buy for myself? What can I do for me? Or should our first thought be how can I build up God's people? How can I be a blessing to my neighbor? How, how can I help advance the kingdom of God? How can I come alongside someone that I know is often in need? How, why has God given me this? And how can I use it for His glory? When you offer to serve someone in the church, do you gravitate towards those that you like? Towards those that you can relate to? Towards those that you enjoy being around? So that the service isn't going to be all that difficult anyway because you'll enjoy sweet fellowship during it. And do you pull back from those that you can't really relate to or may not appreciate as much as others? When you hear that someone in the church has a need that will cost you to sacrifice, is your first response to move forward and say, how can I help? How can I somehow partake in meeting that need? Or is our first instinct to pull back and come up with reasons why I'm not the one that is the person to help this need, meet this need? Brothers, brothers, now I'm treading lightly here because my wife's looking at me and she's saying, I know the truth, I know the truth, but brothers, when we come home from work, do we come home ready for me time, ready for man cave time, ready to be served and to sit back and get away from everyone and, and have our own needs met, or do we come home prayerfully ready to lead and love and shepherd and help to bear the load. It is so easy to think about ourselves. What I need. I worked all day. I need rest. How can we be of service? How can we be used? Luke presents to us, I believe in this text, a people born again by the Spirit of God, radically changed, seeking to unconditionally love their neighbor because God in Christ has unconditionally loved them. And so we see this, this community is, is, is marked by sacrifice. Thirdly, a new creation community is empowered by the gospel. Empowered by the gospel. Verse 33, with great power, the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them all. I love this quote from Calvin. He says, the apostles behaved themselves stoutly in announcing the resurrection of Jesus Christ. They behaved themselves stoutly. They stood tall and continued preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now think about it for a minute. What's happened here? These people have come together. Their lives are transformed. They're, they're giving away their, their goods. They have a windfall of property, an extra house, whatever it is. And they're selling them off and donating the proceeds to the apostles to, to freely bless the community. It was not primarily preaching about financial stewardship that caused them to do this. It was not primarily preaching about generosity or personal sacrifice. It was not primarily a call to be holy as He is holy that accomplished this work of grace. But it is the consistent preaching of the cross of Jesus Christ. The gospel is being proclaimed to the world and the gospel is being proclaimed to the church and through the power of the word, the grace of God is upon these saints and they are being transformed. The gospel and its preaching, um, we've seen clearly in this text and, and everywhere, um, adds to the church. Right? Firstly, we would say certainly that gospel preaching adds to the number of the church. It's the only way that the church will grow numerically, through the preaching of the gospel. 
We saw in Acts chapter 4, this very thing in verse 4, many of those who had heard the word believed. And the number came, the number of the men came to about 5,000. They heard the word and they believed. They were transformed as the Spirit used the word, their lives were changed. So gospel preaching adds to the church. We must preach the gospel. As that sort of popular quote that goes around the story of George Whitfield, the young lady comes to him and she says, you know, sir, you, you just say the same thing. Over and over and over, you preach the same sermon. You must be born again. You must be born again. You must be born again. Everywhere you go, that's all you ever say. You must be born again. And he responds, yes, young maiden, because ye must be born again. You must be born again. The only way the church is to grow is if people are born again through the preaching of the gospel. And if you're here today, that same message you need to hear, you must be born again. There's no access to Christ on on your own merit, on your family's merit, on your church attendance. There is no access to Christ apart from the reception of His gospel. God in Christ summons today you, friend, if you do not know Him, if you're outside of His grace, if you're trusting in anything else, if it's Christ plus anything else, it is deficient, friend. It is Christ and Christ alone that saves. It is His meritorious work and His work alone that saves. And you must be born again. The only way you can know this Christ and spend eternity in His glory and be brought into the fold of this new creation community is if you, on your own, turn from sin and believe in His gospel. Let today be that day. Decide for Christ today. As as Joshua stood up and said, Choose for yourself whom you will serve. Who will you worship, friend? Is it the world? Is it self? Or is it Christ? You have to decide for yourself. God is sovereign, yes, but you must respond. You are not saved passively. Do not get lost in the hyper-Calvinism that you just are passively somehow saved or God will just do it miraculously. No, friend, you must believe upon Christ. You must call upon the name of the Lord. Gospel preaching adds to the church. May God be pleased to add to the church today. We also see, as we've seen here, that gospel preaching emboldens the church. Now remember, last week, I know a lot has happened since last Lord's Day. But remember last week, the wonderful prayer that we saw from the church. Sovereign Lord, who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them. And then we look down in verse 29. What was the petition? Look upon their threats and grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness. And as we saw, we talked about this morning in Sunday school, when we delight in the Lord and delight to do His will, He answers prayer. And what is this but answered prayer? The apostles are faithfully, steadfastly preaching the resurrection of Jesus Christ. This is answered prayer. They continued in all boldness, testifying to the resurrection. It's as if, it's as if they had the song already that we sang Last night, a mighty fortress is our God. Let goods and kindreds go this mortal life also. These folks had been spent their lives for temporal passing pleasures, and now they have beheld Christ, and the world has lost its luster. Preaching of the gospel emboldens the church. The preaching of the gospel finally fuels the church. It fuels the church. Romans chapter 1, you know this passage. Paul writes in verse 7, to all those in Rome who are loved by God and called to be saints. So he clearly is speaking to the church, those that know Jesus, that are called of God. But then he says in verse 14, I am under obligation both to Greeks and to barbarians, both to the wise and to the foolish So I am eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome. 
Now, yes, Paul knew that anywhere he went, very likely there would be unbelievers in the, in the mix. But he's addressing the church. And he says, I am eager to come to you, Christians, to preach the gospel to you. I am eager to, to exalt Jesus Christ, to preach of the resurrection, to preach of his glorious ascension, to preach of his current intercession and current reign from the right hand of the Father. Imagine if you came to church every single week, week after week after week, and all you heard was the law. And I think you'll find this probably in many places. Every week you heard do, 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 do. And you never heard done in Christ, done in Christ. This is going to lead to one of two people, right? This guy over here is despairing because he is woefully inadequate of ever hoping to be a faithful Christian because he never measures up. And this guy over here is self-righteous and says, I can do all of this in my own strength. And over time, he forgets the very need of Jesus Christ in the gospel. But the continued, as we see here, the continued preaching of the gospel, empowered by the ministry of the Holy Spirit, has a steady transforming effect on the people of God. It reorients us. An overemphasis on self is burned away each week with the humble reminder of the man on the cross set before us. A divisive heart is convicted as we're reminded that all is level at the foot of the cross. Who am I to look down my nose at others when me, an unworthy sinner, was received by Christ? A consistent exposure to the gospel causes us to probe our motives, check our hearts, Repent of wrongdoing. Because it's an encouragement. It's an encouragement that I can, in Jesus, be faithful because He has given me the power. It's an encouragement towards repentance because I know when I hear the gospel, I'm received when I repent. He's not an angry father that is sitting back with his arms crossed debating if he should let you grovel long enough to eventually accept you. But according to the grace of Jesus, he receives us. And so, as you think about this message, church, and as you, as you hear about this call of sacrifice, this call of, uh, of these saints, it seems radical, of then being willing to give freely, um, I exhort you to look not to yourself, but to Jesus. If you see in yourself an unwillingness to sacrifice... Look to Christ, who is obedient to the point of death on your behalf, that you would be saved. If you see in your heart a selfishness with your time, with your goods, with your resources, look to Christ, who gave His very life. He gave everything. His whole life was submitted to one mission, one cause, obedience to His Father to bring many sons to glory. If you see yourself a sense of timidity, a sense of fear. Look to Jesus, for in your weakest moment, it is there that His strength is most clearly drawn out. Verse 34, There was not a needy person among them, for as many as were owners of lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid it at the apostles' feet. And it was distributed to each as any had need. Thus Joseph, who was also called by the apostles Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, a Levite, a native of Cyprus, sold a field that belonged to him and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. Now here's where we get into the weeds a bit in this passage. This text has been preached uh, as a seed form of socialism or a seed form of communism. And like you can often do if you isolate this one passage and don't look at the rest of the Bible, we can try to extrapolate that this is a prescriptive text, that Luke is prescribing this is what the church should do. This is how the church is to live. Sell your goods, hold no personal property. If you have true faith and true love for your neighbor... Then trust the Lord and give all of these worldly possessions to the church so that the needy can be blessed and you will not have a preoccupation with self. 
That doesn't work if you just read the next chapter. I don't want to get too far into Dustin's text for next week. But you know the story of Ananias and Sapphira. And they come and they, they, they bring some money before the apostles. And I remember as a young Christian unbeliever hearing this preach and saying, Man, this is not fair. These guys brought money to God and they're dead? What's going on here? But it's telling what Peter says. He says, was this property before you sold it not yours? And after you sold it, was the money not yours? You had no requirement to sell the property, and you had no requirement to bring all the money to the church, but yet you've pretended that you brought it all when you kept back a portion for yourself. So clearly it was not inappropriate for him to have property and to keep the money from the sale. Acts chapter 12, we'll see other Christians owning property, owning a home with no contention. 1 Timothy 6, we see Paul instructing Timothy how he is to exhort the rich in the congregation, that they are to share their wealth and be rich in good works, but he doesn't tell them to redistribute their wealth and to make the church an even playing field so that everyone is now middle class. So what is being said? How should we understand this text? How do we practically apply what is taking place here? I think lastly, the new creation community is marked by generosity. It's marked by generosity, a radical generosity. Now, I don't want to take the punch out of this passage. It's meant to be exemplary. Luke, I believe, understands us to see a mighty work of God being taken place here that has led to incredible acts of generosity within the ranks of the faithful. Those that had an abundance, those that had houses, those that had lands were selling them off. They were giving away their goods to support those in need. And I believe there's a key statement in here that helps us see God's heart behind what is the aim here. And it's in verse 34. There was not a needy person among them. There was not a needy person among them. The, the thrust of this text is not you have to sell everything if you want to be truly faithful to Christ. The, the thrust of this text is that the church should be so radically generous that if any is in need, the church rallies to meet that need, even if it hurts, even if it means the loss of a toy or the loss of something that we had our hopes set on, some earthly pleasure. The church has stepped up in this text to be sure that all are cared for. They refuse to let their brothers and sisters suffer, struggle, go hungry. This is basically the body taking care of the body. Right? Needs are met, sacrifices are made out of the abundance of the grace of God in their hearts, the Lord's people gave, and they gave generously. They gave generously. Again, I think what has happened is their view of possessions has been fundamentally changed. They have a different view of who owns their stuff and a different view of the purpose for that stuff. Whose ultimately is it, and why has He given it to me? And Luke highlights for us one example in Barnabas. He had a field that was his, and he sold it that it might be a blessing to the church, that the needs of the church might be met. It's interesting here in this passage, if you are familiar with the Old Testament law, you know that there are many Sabbaths in the Old Testament, not just the one weekly Sabbath. And one of the Sabbaths is in Deuteronomy 15, and it's a seventh year Sabbath. Every seven years, there was to be a Sabbath. And when that happened, debts were alleviated. Debts were erased. So every seven years, if somebody owed you money, it was erased. And in God's heart was that people would not be burdened forever, that people were not owning others and lording over them their, their interest in what they owed, and that people would be free. And I think he gets at his whole purpose behind that law in Deuteronomy 15.4. He says, there will be no poor among you. For the Lord will bless you in the land that the Lord your God is giving you for an inheritance to possess. The word here that is used for needy in the Greek is the same word in the Greek translation of the Old Testament for poor there. Now I think that if we're honest, we have a skewed view of what it means to be poor in our day. Amen. I don't know that anyone's poor in this congregation in a biblical sense. We are all blessed of God in various ways. But I see in this text 
Deuteronomy 15, verse 4, being fulfilled. There will be no poor, no needy among you. But what is incredible is that this has happened not through the command of the law, but it's happened through the mighty work of the gospel, giving these Christians new hearts, causing them to love their neighbor more than themselves. So let me, let me try to land this plane. All of this, I think, comes down to, again, a fundamental new understanding of our possessions, our time, and our gifting. God brings us, as Christians, together into a new creation community, a people gathered that have changed hearts, that have His Spirit, and He graces us with new desires, new directions, but we must still put to to death the flesh. Amen? We must still put to death the deeds of the body by the power of the Spirit. And when God's people see their possessions, their gifts, and their time, ultimately, as the blessing of God to be used for the good of others, when we see our time, our possessions, and our gifts as instruments and tools given to us by God that we might be useful in the hands of our Master, The church thrives in unity. All are built up. None feel less than our second rate. And no one is left behind. All needs are met. And the world sees what Jesus said they ought to see. A people marked by their love for one another. One as He is one with the Father. But when the church takes the outlook of the world, is divisive and self-focused and greedy, As we'll see next week, God brings judgment instead of blessing. God will correct us when we are in sin. The sheep are harmed. The church's witness is discredited, disrupted, and tarnished. So let me leave you with a a question. Where are you storing up your treasures? Where are you storing up your treasures? Do you have a preoccupation with the world's goods? Do you have a preoccupation with feeding your own belly, building up your own kingdom, getting all that I can, getting while the getting's good? Or are you storing up treasures in heaven where moth and rust cannot destroy? Are you storing up treasures that will have an eternal impact upon your own soul and upon every soul that the Lord would give you the opportunity to influence? Something to think about today. Let's pray.